Welcome to Kibbe on Liberty. Today, perhaps the most important conversation that you will ever, ever have with Andrew Heaton about whether or not Baby Yoda wins in 2020. Check it out. Up by some farmer kid who spent the day trying to track down a tractor for me, although all the farmers were drunk at an agricultural festival three counties over. And so I was like, well, I guess I live here now. Can you take me to the local pub? And there was a biker gang there. Uh, and I went there, and I was like, and, you know, they're all giving me the weird side eye. And uh, I went, oh, I've had a hell of a day. I, I, uh, I crashed my van into your bog. And one of the guys looks up and he goes, was it the bog north of town over by the cairn? And I was like, yeah. And he's like, oh, we've all hit that bog. We'll get you a drink, mate. And like, and I after that, I had this gang of bikers that like, they're all calling out their phones going, cheesy, cheesy, there's a lad from America crashed his, his van into the bog. And they, I, I had like, I ended up going to like biker prom and uh, and drank a tremendous amount of scotch, bringing us back to whatever my original point was. So it was a good good time. Well, you got to tell that on camera. So we're going to get rolling because uh, this, this will be a nice uh, story to tell why we're drinking uh Scotch whiskey. Perfect. Perfect. Are we ready? We're rolling. Yeah. Andrew, good to see you again. You too, Matt. Good to be back. I've been uh, I've been reading on the internet. Everyone's like, where did where where's Andrew? Where is Andrew? Well, you're right here. I a lot of people don't know this. I've been living in hiding in your loft. Yeah. And I'm finally coming out of hiding. Yeah. And I'm and, and you're either going to have to move on or or pay rent. Yes, that's why I'm coming out of hiding. Yeah. I, I, I wanted to just stay and, and do cosplay, and and you said nope, I have to pay my own rent, and I went well, I'm not going to do that. So um, we you were we were just talking and and you spent some time in Scotland uh, um, having probably having some sort of a midlife crisis I think yeah I have those a lot yeah I don't know whether that means I'm going to die early or die late given the amount of midlife crises I've now had and uh, you 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 appear to be based on on things I've read on the internet a Scotch drinker very much so yes yeah. I, I think both in terms of uh, a criminal record and the internet there's yeah. many testaments to my my. Uh, a prodigious Scotch appetite. So I have I've laid the table, and we have uh, uh, we have a Glenmorangie, which is is quite nice. Um, if if you're really a man, the Kilcoman. Okay. Which is is uh, that an Isla? Where's that from? That is an Isla. Oh, really? Okay. Am I saying that right? Uh, it's I, I I've always heard Isla. Isla. Okay. But I, I'm going to do that for this reason. Although you know what? Oh, Dalmore. Yeah. That's good stuff too. Well, um, if we if we really hit it off, am I allowed to come back for seconds? Yes. Okay. Well, in that case, if I may, I'm going to go with the. Uh, uh, how do you say that? Because I'm not familiar with that one. Kilcoman. Kilcoman. I'm going to go with the Isla because Isla tends to be very peaty, and I want your producers to be able to smell it on my breath. I want them to know that I am drinking scotch, even from seven feet away. Well, honestly, they've been drinking since noon. So. <laughs> right, Logan. That's right. And it and honestly, the the production goes a little bit smoother if they've had a couple drinks. Perfect. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, I'm I'm not going to be as bold as you. I'm going to have the the Glen Morangi. But uh, tell us a tell us about your trip to Scotland. You 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 left the blaze and you you went on this this soul seeking mission. I I I went to I went to uh, I did three things in short order. I went to Scotland. I went. I, I performed comedy in Iceland for students for liberty for international students for liberty in Iceland. Um, some of which knew you and Terry, and we're speaking very highly of you. Um, yeah, we we spoke last year at the same same okay, event. Be, a, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, uh, Magnus and all that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and and then I also did a, I did stand up uh, at Burning Man. I hung out with uh, with Grover Norquist at a trailer at one point. But in Scotland, which was was, was one of the highlights of the summer, um, I was there. I got to interview Dominic Frisby, who, as I described earlier to, to you off camera, is like you plus Remy from Reason if you had a kid in England. Uh, he he's the only musical English libertarian comedian, and uh, and and another guy that was that was the uh, um, Scottish comedian of the year last year. And then the really fun part was I rented a camper van and drove around the Highlands because whenever I, whenever I'm over there, I try and see a new place. And so I rented this camper van, drove around the Highlands. Their roads are three and a half feet wide, uh, and also uh, Scotland is mostly a bog, uh, as I have come to find out. Now I'm from Oklahoma which is good, honest terrain. It is just stalwart, Reliable. Reliable. honest soil that you can count on. You can build a house on that soil. 
Scottish soil, I got to say, is kind of dishonest. You can't trust it. And I, I, I pulled – so a lot, of, a lot of the roads in the Highlands, they're, they're only big enough for one car. And you'll pull off in a little parking space, and they'll come by. And I did that because I'm polite. But I, I overshot by a foot, and the whole car, the van, slid down into the bog until it was perched at this very precarious 45-degree angle that, I mean, if you punched it, it would have just rolled off into the creek. And uh, I ended up hitchhiking, and a, a local kid picked me up, and we drove around for several hours and uh, uh, tried to find farmers with tractors, but all the farmers were drunk at a, at a farming festival like, like two counties over. Like the crew. Yeah. Like the crew. Yes, yeah. exactly. I was encountering the, I would have encountered the Logan of Scotland. Uh, and uh, instead, uh, I, I ended up, I, and I called um, the towing company, and, and that was uh, no help because they were like, oh, let's see, it's a Thursday. Well, we were taking tomorrow off, and then it's the weekend. We're not going to do that. And then Monday, we're all atheists, but it's the Feast of St. Crispin. We don't work on that day. So if you like, we could probably get to you by the following Thursday. And I'm like, I guess I live here. I live here in Leipster. So I had the kid drive me to um, the local tavern, and I walked in, and there was a biker gang, all of whom looked like Matt Kibbe, uh, just with longer beards. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and kilts. And, well, they were, wearing, they were wearing leather. They had, like, the black leather thing going on. Yeah. And, and, I, and they were all kind of giving me that, like, old western saloon side-eye thing. And I, I went— Because you're dressed like that. Because I— <laughs> well, Yeah, I think—actually, I, um, I was wearing an ostrich skin jacket. With this giant turquoise ring, so huh. I looked like I was like I was very much a man of America. But I but I went ah oh, I, I uh, I've had a hell of a day. I, um, I I crashed my my van into your swamp, and one of them looked up and he went, "Would you have crashed that in the swamp north of town over by the Cairn?" And I went, "Yeah." And he went, "Oh, we've all done that." And then they all nodded in agreement. And they started pulling out their phones and like calling old cheesy and whoever. And and I ended up going to biker prom. And I think I am now friends with everyone in Leibster, Scotland. And I got the van out. It all worked out really well. So so Scotland is a cheers. Cheers. Uh, yeah, the, I guess the moral of the story is if you want to make f- friends in Scotland, drive your van into something. Yeah. And and people will come just out of, out of both uh, neighborliness and sheer boredom. You will become a local member of the community. Well, hopefully... Um you you stocked up and smuggled uh, tariff-free oh, scotch God. back to the United I, States. I wish I had because that had not come into fruition while I was over there. Had I known, I would have rented a boat and uh, brought over as much as I could. I was apoplectic when that happened. Yeah. Uh, that was the <laughs> – I, I, I was already not a Trump fan uh, and have not been for some time. But you jack with scotch prices. Right. When you use a tariff to affect scotch prices, that like that's that's it. Whatever Adam Schmidt, Adam Schiff wants, I'll I'll back him on it. Just do, you, that's it. That's fine. Whatever. Just, I'm I'm anti scotch tariffs. So I, I I tweeted out at the time, and and by the way, just yesterday, the administration announced that they're going after French champagne, French cheese, and they had already gone after Italian wine and and Scotch whiskey and, and Irish whiskey, and I'm like, are you personally? targeting my lifestyle because might, they might just be trying to make everyone in dc hate them is this payback yeah. for for supporting gary johnson in 2016 because <laughs> it seems personal at this point oh yeah well that'll that'll learn us for having the gall to buy from foreigners matt yes. how dare we do that some some amateur tweeted back well we make whiskey in this country and i'm like sir i like bourbon and bourbon is bourbon Scotch whiskey is whiskey. Yes, I, I have to say I'm firmly in the Scotch camp on that one. And and bur- bourbon to me tastes like Scotch with maple syrup in it. I can't drink unless it's in a cocktail. I can't drink it. So I'm not I'm not doing any of that national patriotism nonsense when it comes to <laughs> liquor. No, sir. Well, you know we could we could talk about tariffs and and we could talk about um, uh, impeachment. You you mentioned Adam Schiff, but but I, I thought you know everybody talks about that stuff. So I thought we'd talk about something really important. Something that that really matters, and of course, I'm talking about Baby Yoda. Yes, uh, the best thing of 2019. Yeah, that is the highlight of the year. Fantastic. It's, I mean, there, I mean, and there's so many unanswered questions, and there's, there's, I frankly, there's a little bit of controversy swirling around, like, like, is, is this Yoda's son? Oh, I hadn't even thought about that. And which, which would also beg the question: Is there Lady Yoda? Yeah. Is, is, is there a hot Mama Yoda? Yeah, hanging out somewhere on Coruscant. Where's Yoda Mama? Yeah. Where Where is she? 
and did did Yoda do the right thing by her? I, like these are all questions. No, maybe that's why he went to Dagobah. Yeah, maybe because you know you're thinking like this is a weird thing that Obi Wan Kenobi's going to Darth Vader's home planet and changing his name from Obi Wan Kenobi to Ben Kenobi to try like oh that's that'll throw him off. How could they ever figure that out unless they've got a phone book? And then yeah, Yoda goes and. That okay, Yoda goes and hangs out in a swamp to avoid <laughs> to avoid adult responsibility. Yeah, I actually really like that. Yeah, I, and I, I think that's going to come out in due time because in the age of the internet, you can't hide these things yeah. anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, I, I I worry that 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 um, baby Yoda is a bastard child. You you know what? So I I I do a funny uh, politics podcast, but I just recently launched a sci-fi podcast. And literally before talking to you, I, I talked to Jonathan Last over at the Bulwark because he is an apologist for the Empire. He believes that the Galactic Empire really? was, a, was a source of order and peace and that Palpatine represents a kind of Machiavellian, uh, you know, Machiavellian dictator you can work with. He's kind of the Pinochet of the stars, right? And, uh, and like, I this got- is, This is Blue, Blue Berm, Blue Bloomberg's view on President Xi in China, by the way. Oh, really? Yes. Okay, yes. Uh, and if if it turns out Yoda produ- sired bastard Yoda baby and uh, took no responsibility for them, it would play into Jonathan's argument that the uh, that the Jedi were corrupt, institutionally uh, sclerotic organization. Or it may be uh, Game of Thrones. I mean, this could be sort of a Jon Snow scenario where everyone thinks that Baby Yoda is a bastard and 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 is shunned for the first. 750 years you know, of his if, life. If it turns out Baby Yoda's a Targaryen, that will be quite, yeah. <laughs> quite the, the turn of events. That would be right a bringing there. together of all yeah. the mega brands. That would, I like, my head would explode to try, like, to watch that as the successor to Game of Thrones is Baby Yoda rallying the troops to go fight uh, whoever fills, uh, brand the broken. But you, you, you tweeted out that uh, I'm sort of, sort of an adoring um, and grandizing tweet about Baby Yoda. Mm-hmm. Like, this matters to you. Mm-hmm. Well, like, um, you know, we're, we're both in the political milieu, right? Uh, I, I've been doing the sci-fi stuff, and I'm, I'm still doing the political stuff as well. I'm still doing political comedy. But I the sci-fi stuff I, I love because I like science fiction in and of itself, but it's also very important to me that I have some creative outlet that does not force me to exist in a matrix that's us versus them. Right. When, when I'm hanging out like, no one ever, I've never called anybody and gone, well, you want to come on my sci-fi podcast? And they go, I don't know. I heard that you're pretty friendly with TOS people. I know you're not TOS, but you are TOS adjacent. And I'm Deep Space Nine. No one ever does that, right? Uh, and, and and no one's like, well, I can't. If, well, if there's I, a subreddit if, for that, by <laughs> the way. There, there are a few people, but I haven't brought them on yet. Uh, and, and no one's worried about me, like, normalizing Battlestar Galactica or anything like that. So so I, I the, the sci-fi is this just wonderful reprieve. And if, and if, you've, if you ever... Are getting down. I think you've got a thicker skin than I do, and I'm envious of that. But uh, if you go on Twitter and you just jump into the sci-fi stuff, it's all these wonderful strangers from across the globe that just want to revel in how wonderful science fiction is and and have these awesome conversations. Oddly, oddly, I feed on the hate. It seems seems like the more angry people. <laughs> you get must at be me. very strong right now. Then, <laughs> you, well, just, this, this might be the Matt Kibbe origin story if you can feed on yes, the hate. It it improves my mood just to read some of the more ridiculous attacks that you inevitably get whenever you express an opinion about anything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Maybe even sci-fi, but uh, let's. Um, I mean, you, you you tease these, but let's let's talk about the two podcasts that you're doing right now because. Because anybody watching this show absolutely needs to be a subscriber to these things. I agree. Thank you, Matt. Yeah. I thought well, you might buy that. Well, well, I'll begin with the science fiction one. I, so I, I recently launched a podcast called Alienating the Audience, and that is a deep dive on science fiction. Occasionally, politics wanders into it, but it's not the it's not the thrust of it. What I really like doing is I really enjoy exploring the the deep themes and constructs and mindset of science fiction. So. Um, you know, I did an episode with Tim Sandifer, who we both know, where we're really getting into the mind of Rod Serling, and we're talking about what, what are what's motivating the Twilight Zone. You know, what is it? Collectivism? Is it a fear of totalitarianism? Is it nostalgia? What's going on there? What's the world that Rod Serling's trying to show us? Um, I'm about to drop this week um, a one on Robert Heinlein, um, which which also has all sorts of ideological concepts that are in there. So I really enjoy doing the deep dive, and I'm finding that the people that like the podcast tend to be very hardcore science fiction fans that are also pretty intense abstract thinkers and like getting into the the, the deep underlying stuff. And so that's alienating the audience for the, the sci-fi nerds. There does, and, and certainly Heinlein and, and others uh, um, 
dick these there's there's a there's definitely a libertarian ethos and and definitely Heinlein, not so yeah. not so much ideology but just that that sense of, of yeah. individualism and well Heinlein for sure yeah I mean Heinlein like there there are exceptions like um uh Starship Troopers is frequently uh portrayed as a fascist work um but I I mean my read on it is I think if you're writing a book set in a fascist universe it doesn't necessarily mean you're a fascist right uh, I think overall Heinlein is a very 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 much an individualist I'd say he's a very horny individualist since every <laughs> book by Heinlein I've ever read involves a very attractive female protagonist explaining why she's desperately in love with you, but understands that you need to have sex with other people. There's always that moment. Well, in fairness, Ayn Rand was a fairly horny individualist it's, as well. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, actually, I should. I've, I've thought about doing. Um, I, I've never read. Uh, what what is her her science fiction book? Is it? It's Anthem. Anthem. Yeah. yeah. Which I'm told I would enjoy. I'm not an Ayn Rand fan, but I'm told that I would enjoy that because it's a sci-fi piece. Um, and that, that was my gateway drug. Really? Yeah. It was. Uh, um, and I've told this story a thousand times, and and my producer gets mad at me because I keep telling this story. But my gateway drug to libertarianism was a science fiction rock album called Twenty One Twelve by Rush, and it's basically a a, a science fiction fiction interpretation of Ayn Rand's Anthem, and it's actually dedicated to Ayn Rand. Really? And of course, Anthem itself is sort of a, a sci-fi take on on individualism, right. rage against the machine. Kind of thing, which is a classic science fiction matrix kind of thing. I had no idea Rush did that. That's fascinating. I I'll, I'll, I want to read that because I'm also curious. Like I've been thinking a lot the last few months about kind of where my my political bearings are, um, and I, and for me, I'm kind of I got like a dual um, dual agenda. I want to help people, but also if you're not hurting anybody, you get to do whatever you want. That's right. pretty much it. That's right. my my core philosophy. Um, the helping people thing, I'm very much a utilitarian to the point where I'm very sympathetic, if not openly endorsing, like, Norwegian social democracy. Um, but in terms of in terms of individuals uh, regulating their own behavior or uh, the relationship between consenting adults, I'm very libertarian. And I don't really seem to fit on any spectrum in American politics at present. Um, Rand, I think, is a speed bump for me because she so extols the virtue of selfishness, which is not really a part of my worldview. And I'll I'll acknowledge, like, you know, Adam Smith aptly points out that the the overall economic system benefits from having skin in the game and by being incentivized to contribute to the bigger picture through your own self-aggrandizement. Um, I get that. But the kind of, like, um, reflexive, I don't have any obligation to anybody else, and that, and that philosophically is against... Uh, Individualism. I don't really. I don't really have any any overlap with that, which is, I think why why Rand's never really appealed to me. And I think I think the wording is a little clumsy. And I've I've defended her before. Um, I think she was trolling, right? Like yeah. was she kind of trying to make a splash? Well, she was she was either trolling or she, as as a um, teenager, I believe, who had uh, a young Jewish girl that fled Bolshevik Russia after the 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 communists had taken all of her dad's stuff. Right. I think I think there's some righteous rage against the machine. Leave me the f alone. Sure. And and I think uh, I think her her use of the word selfish is very different than than I think Americans would typically understand it as selfish in, in American nomenclature is is sort of uh, it's it's not self interested it's 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 greedy and petty mm. and I will do anything to you that I need to do to get what I want mm. and that's that's not what she's talking about and that's certainly not what libertarians are talking about yeah uh, but but I I digress so. So science fiction, good, good tangent though. Yeah. I, I enjoy that. Yeah. So okay. So science fiction, alienating the audience. So if you're if you're into science fiction, and I, I suspect that much of your audience is, and I suspect that they would enjoy the abstract, uh, spelunking. Um, that's alienating the audience. And I do a weekly political show. So I was doing a daily show. A lot of your listeners or viewers might be familiar, excuse me, with my old show, um, Something's Off with Andrew Heaton. I now do a weekly show called The Political Orphanage. And the premise to it's very similar. Uh, I don't feel like I belong on red team or blue team. I don't feel like I really belong on the left-right spectrum. Uh, and more to the point, um, I have lots of friends I disagree with. Uh, I find it, I just, I'm kind of mystified by the, the current political environment where we're all supposed to be locked in this Manichaean battle of, of cosmic forces of good and evil. And it like, I, I assume I'm wrong about 20% of the stuff I currently believe. I just don't know what part. So I'm open. And I have lots of friends that I think are dead wrong, but well-meaning. And I'm happy to be friends with them. And so I'm trying to create a space for people that emotionally resonate with that, where they're they're looking to have a fun, because it is a comedy show, or at least I do a lot of comedy in it, 
um, a fun space rather than a hate space or a bile space. I think a lot of the a lot of the commentary at is. Um, uh, are we are we up to cut that? Should I? <laughs> no, we. I'll just you take that. I'll just. I think take I, this. I think I have to put a twenty dollar bill in the in the jar every time I leave my phone on during a podcast. Um, no worries. I've now had that happen many times. Um, uh, I think much of the commentary at uh, consists of regurgitating people's opinions back to them and reinforcing their opinion, and then adding a kind of moral self righteousness to it. I am supremely uninterested in moral self righteousness. Yeah. Uh, I am much more interested in kind of making an intellectual journey and exploring things. Um, and the longer I do it, on my show in particular, and, I, and this was kind of inadvertent, but I find that I am way more interested in policy and heuristics um, than I am with who's right and who's wrong. Um, now, I care about that, clearly, uh, and I have my opinions, and I get into them periodically, but I'm, I'm genuinely just more intellectually interested in how do progressives think versus conservatives versus libertarians. And, and I, so I'm constantly exploring that, and I bring in a lot of political scientists to do that as well. Yeah, but I, and I think that, that that process, that process of figuring stuff out is, is the, the magic of, of human interaction. It's, it's precisely what Hayek was talking about when he talked about the spontaneous order. And it's, it's humble enough to know that you don't know very much stuff at all. Yeah. And, and, and to hope that there is a marketplace of ideas in which being yeah. able to air them, the better ones will rise to the top. Of course. And, and, and we all, and, and me as a, as a libertarian, I'm, I'm, I'm somewhat doctrinaire. I, I think there's only one perfect libertarian, and that happens to be me. Yeah. Um, and, you, you know, the joke about libertarians is we're not really comfortable until we've chased everyone else out of the room with our, with our doctrinaire views. But... The, the this explaining this this beautiful chaos of figuring stuff out and and not knowing exactly what's going to happen tomorrow but you have you have certain expectations and you know about institutional constraints and you have families and and churches and neighborhoods all of which sort of hold the world together while you while you plummet forward in this unknown future that's that's a beautiful thing and the alternative to that, of course, is some politician promising that they're going to make your life better. Yeah. Well, and like something that I've really thought about the last few months is like the, my, my two big concerns with our country right now are I'm worried about tribalism, which we've touched on, mm -hmm. and I'm worried about alienation. I think that there's a ton of people who are, you know, just very lonely and just very disconnected and not a part of any community. And I, and I don't really think that's a partisan issue. I think it's just, it's happening. Yeah. Um, and everybody can contribute, and I don't mean to ostracize anybody, but um, one of the, the good things I think about the libertarian worldview is that um, it acknowledges that the state can't love you, right? So like, to, to kind of take a general swing at everybody, I think in the 20th century, we learned to fetishize two things. We learned to fetishize markets and the state. So if there's a problem that needs fixing, we're either going to figure out a way to monetize it or we're going to force somebody to do it. Um, and in reality, I think a lot of the problems that we're facing right now, the answer is not uh, a transaction or the state. The answer is relationships. Now, the, the beneficial thing about libertarianism or classical liberalism or however you want to praise it is an acknowledgment that the state can't facilitate an emotional relationship with you. Um, a market can't necessarily do that, although for the record, markets can buy sex. So there's a little bit of a lead there. But ultimately, you're going to have to have that human component there. And that's not something that you can fiat or you yeah. can legislate. That yeah. comes from an organic interaction between people rather than the top down. Yeah, and I think we've, um, we've always fed into this caricature as, as market enthusiasts that, that sort of the intersection of supply and demand is, is somehow that magic moment where all of our problems are solved. And, and, what, and I think even what... Uh, some of my intellectual heroes like like Mises and Hayek would would talk about is the the fact that you're you're never going to get to that point where all of your problems are solved and it's the process of trying to get there and it's the the friends that 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 are your support structure and the institutions like families these are yeah. these things are very important but we don't talk about that we talk about you know markets clear yeah. yeah. Well, and I think, I think you're absolutely right about that. I think that there's a, a kind of misnomer that happens all the time where, um, uh, like, competition is good insofar as it lowers prices. But other, there's nothing inherently good about it. Or I'll put it another way. Um, I don't really I, – I care about your freedom of association and your economic freedom. I don't really care whether or not you're trying to make money or not. I don't think everybody has to do that, right? So, like – 
uh, I have made deleterious decisions in my life in terms of finances. It would have made far more sense for me to become an attorney and to do that. But I decided to be a comedian. That wasn't a good call, but it, I, uh, I, it's fine. And I support a lot of my friends to do that. Um, and, uh, you know, like, if, if you want to go live in a commune and have shared resources, that's fine. I Like, I fully support you. I might well do that. I would, like, I'm... There's something very appealing about having like a tiny house village to me where I know everybody in it. I really like that idea. But um, the your, your biker friends. I mean, I, I feel yeah, like yeah, you, yeah. You they were great. A, yeah. I would totally go back. Well, I, you know, if I, I think about it, it's very cold up there. Uh, but uh, um, but but the, the key element there is, is what we're championing is not. Um, it's not you should go make money. Money's good, uh, and it, it it's it's you should have the ability to freely interact with people, and you get to determine how you do that. If you want to do that by living in a in a commune where everybody lives in a tiny house and you, you make wicker baskets, that is 100% fine, and I support you in that wholly, and I hope that it brings you joy and happiness. If you want to be a doctor and you want to go do that, that's fine too. Yeah. You, you get to determine what the, the joy is that comes to your life, and you get to determine the nature of the relationship with the people around you. Yeah. The, uh, there's a lot of talk amongst uh, young progressives about uh, economic dignity, and I hear this from, from, from democratic socialists and and there's there is that that sense of alienation, which I think is very real, and it it's it's a little bizarre to economists like me because they're in a lot of ways they're living in a post scarcity world. Like they don't they don't get up in the morning and worry about whether or not they're going to eat. They don't worry about whether or not there's there's heat in the winter. Right. Um, capitalism has essentially solved a lot of these problems, um, so they're they're focused on. Uh, less tangible things like dignity. And I think we could have a conversation about that because I, I, I find it I find it sort of fantastical that somehow politics will give you dignity. I, I, don't, I don't think there's a piece of legislation or a, a, a Trump executive order that's going to, to restore anybody's maybe dignity. Maybe I should run on, maybe I should form a, I'll reboot the Whigs, which I've thought about doing. Yeah. And then have the- <laughs> Of course you have. Have, have the, uh, the the policy, we, we are going to fiat dignity. Yeah. Like, okay, yeah. who's, first of all, who's going to fight me on that? Yeah. Uh, that's, we can get that bill well, you, you might You might win, actually. Yeah, are you pro-dignity? Great. Yeah. It, doesn't, it doesn't cost you anything. Yeah, yeah, uh, I think that's there. Yeah, I mean, I think the, 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 the two breakdowns that I, I'm, I'm focused on in that regard are, there's there's the, um, the distinction between combating poverty versus combating inequality. Uh, I am concerned with combating poverty. I think that's a very real, very um, good conversation to have. It's mm -hmm. not the same thing as inequality. It is if the inequality is based on predation. Right. If that's the case, then we need to have a conversation about that. But if it's just like you're middle class and also J.K. Rowling's a billionaire, I don't remotely care. Right. I don't, I'm fine with that gap existing. Um, I think where, where I, would, I would swing more towards the Social Democrats is um, uh, I, I'm very much against um, legislating the interaction between consenting adults or whatever we do with our bodies. I'm going to drink scotch, smoke a cigar, that kind of thing. I am okay with taxing people in order to create some sort of safety net. So I think where they've got a point, from my viewpoint, is making sure everybody kind of has uh, a, a standardized starting position that they're able to go with. And I'm okay with that. I'm okay with raising taxes to have a, a, you know, a, a floor that's elevated. What I don't want to do is try and get rid of that inequality by lowering the ceiling, which is, I think, a lot of the conversation happening right now is just billionaires are bad. Uh, and I don't want to punish success. That's fine. Uh, if, if you want to even tax them to try and raise that floor, I'm okay with that. What I'm not okay with is just being rich is bad, let's get rid of rich people. I think that's Bolshevik thinking that you know lends itself to a very poor economic model. Yeah. The, the other, the, the challenge um, has been, and this is where sort of... Um, constitutional limits on government actually comes into play is like the, the, the problem with um, well-sounding safety net type things is that you create a, a third party. You create sort of a bureaucratic class that, um, in, at least in modern America, and I, I, I think in a lot of places you, you see in, in education, in, in welfare support type programs, that the, the bureaucratic class actually becomes more important than the patients or the students or the the people that are supposedly being helped, and and that's where you know the, that beast is is insatiable. Well, and I'll give you more ammunition because the the two things that militate against my position that I think about a lot are can can you inoculate a population against charity by virtue of having a, a tax system, right? So. I pay my taxes. I don't need to donate to charity, which I don't want. That I think I think charity is going to be much more responsive 
and much more interactive than a, than a, a state is, and I worry about that. The other thing I think can happen is it's very easy to create um, inadvertent uh, incentives. Um, it's easy to do that. Like I like say like UBI appeals to me more because it's just cleaner. Mm-hmm. It seems to me that it has less bureaucratic pitfalls to it. But you can have those bureaucratic pitfalls. Like I was listening to um, evil conservative right wing radio uh, news radio or not uh, not news radio um, radio lab. Sorry, radio lab. The evil right wing radio lab, right? And they did a great they did a great episode. Or it might have been it might have been this American Life. Either way, it's from NPR and and you know center left to progressive. But they they did a story where. Uh, a, a woman has, she's living in New York, she's got a kid with a learning disability, and you can hear the pain in her voice as she's describing the situation where she, she's getting a federal subsidy because her kid is in, uh, because her kid has a learning disability. Um, and she says, like, I would love for my son to do better in school, but if he does, we don't get that money anymore. Yeah. And it's like, we've put her in a very difficult position now where she basically has to hamstring her kid. In order to get that money, like that kind of thing, I think can happen. You have to be very careful about. Yeah, but it, it all of these programs are rife with those sort of perverse, unintended consequences. Are you, what do you think about UBI? Um, I think that um, UBI, as as an economist, I would think that a UBI as as a complete replacement for the welfare state, because you you theoretically could solve some of the the, the bureaucratic permanent like feeding off of the system kind of problems if you could replace it with a UBI and you probably get less perverse unintended consequences that way. Um, it was tried in one of the Scandinavian countries. Yeah. Do you remember what they actually got rid of it too, didn't they? Finland. Yeah. yeah. And it was, and the theory was if we just distri- redistribute wealth this way, um, we'll help people get up off their feet and get jobs. And it had the opposite effect because you know, kids were, were smoking more, bong hits and Mm. and eat more pizzas i don't know if they eat pizza in finland but you get the point yeah but like it's a deal that would never happen because uh, because the the political power of this of this massive machine of middlemen um, very much dictates um the political outcome so you could you could conceive of a process by which you could replace the welfare state with ubi that would be less destructive to, to people's incentive to, to, to get their act together. Because what we were talking about earlier, I think, is essential. If, if dignity is, is one of the goals of, of human life, and I think it should be, um, you can't subsidize it. You can't pay for it. You can't legislate it. You have to do it yourself. And this, this gets back to my, my, my libertarianism. Um, dignity is hard work. Dignity is uncomfortable. Dignity. I had to buy a waistcoat. Is that process of failing so much that you actually um, get to a point where you can achieve something? And I don't think there's a shortcut. And I don't. I don't think anything we talk about in public policy is is going to give any young progressive that's feeling alienated dignity. They're, they're going to have mm-hmm. to figure out how to do it themselves. And we could we could probably reduce barriers um, so that they could they could get out there and achieve. They could they could be entrepreneurial. They could hopefully get an education that wouldn't bankrupt them, but those are all those are all things that government could do to get out of the way. But I'm not sure government can do things to help them yeah. create I mean, that I, I process. The the best the government can do is set the stage for fulfillment. Um, there's no way to, to mandate that. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah. The the best thing that it could do is, I think, if you're going to be very, um, if you're going to lean towards the progressive model, the best it can do is give everybody a fair shake, etc., or reduce fear. Um, and and provide uh, material stuff, but you can't go from that to having you know fulfilling life and purpose and friends and family and that kind of thing. Um, nor would I want a Department of Friends. Of we course, we do the second round. Well, we're doing a second round because there is a shortcut, albeit temporary, path to dignity, and <laughs> and, and that is whiskey. And that is, of course, sick of all scotch. Yeah. And I'm, uh, I'm going to go where you went. What, okay, so. Um, Another of my nascent uh, social democracy um, positions is uh, I would I would like some kind of safety net from a healthcare perspective. I don't want single payer healthcare, mm-hmm. or rather, I don't think we could pull it off. Um, but I would like to have some kind of voucher system or, or national insurance or something like that, kind of akin to food stamps. Yeah, um, I'm guessing you would not be fav- in favor of that, but I'd like to know why. So if you're gonna if you're gonna do it. Um, and and my answer might surprise you a little bit. I, I don't think I don't think uh, national insurance is a good idea. I think it's a horrible idea because you're replacing one set 
of milk. That's so good. Dalmore is so good. Thank you for letting me drink this whiskey with you. Sorry, please continue. See? A little bit of temporary dignity. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so, the, I mean, the problem with healthcare is you have middlemen making decisions, and, and they're, they're price insensitive, and patients don't make decisions based on cost and benefit. And it's the same as, and this sounds callous, but it's the same process of, of, of buying food. There's lots of competition. Uh, there aren't any uh, overt subsidies for uh, loaves of bread. Therefore, it's, it's cheap and competitive and, and awesome. Um, but if you wanted to take, again, if you could take the current system and, and get rid of all the third parties, and, and there's a lot of government regulations going back right. to FDR. It's a that, very, that, very regulated industry. That, that created um, you know, business insurance and, and all that stuff. If you could replace that with vouchers where patients could make choices with doctors yeah. and, and, and actually, I would advocate for, actually yeah. ask, like, how much is this going to cost? Um, you, would, you would do tremendous things to, to create an actual market where beautiful things happen and people live longer yeah. and I, I, choices and I, I are made. I think for something that, that massive, there's got to be skin in the game to keep prices down. There's got to be a market mechanism to keep prices down. So yeah. I, I would want something like maybe Singapore. But there's a uh, keep in mind there is a massive political machine yeah. that feeds both political parties, and, and I, I think people forget that it's a really heavily regulated industry. Like yeah. I, I, I could be wrong about this, but it's my understanding that by law, if you and I were forming an insurance company, we could not offer people like a forty dollar a month catastrophic coverage option. Right. That would because right now by law you have to provide X amount of things. Well, like I'm I'm an independent, you know, I, I I'm 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 a, I'm a solopreneur. I'm doing this on my own. I would love to have the option of um, paying forty dollars a month for catastrophic coverage because right now my biggest expenditure is healthcare. But I can't. But I have to purchase a certain amount, um, and that's a regulation that's causing that to happen. It's right. not the market that's doing that. It's that they're rising the floor in what you're you're paying for. So, like, there's. I mean, there's two challenges. Whenever you come up with a, a policy idea, uh, there's there's two challenges. You, first of all, you think of something that would actually work based on economics and and based on on scarcity and all the things that, that go into to hopefully reasonable public policy. But then there's the political piece about whether or not um, creating such a program would, would, would be viable and sustainable because you, you go in with good ideas, it gets through the political process, and it doesn't even resemble what you set out to do in the first place. And then 30 years later, you get the welfare industrial complex that is, that is literally holding poor people down from being – being able to or even allowed to achieve because they would lose that benefit that the moment they rate to make more right, one more the, dollar the welfare cliff yeah so that those are all problems but 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 I want to pivot because like like yeah we could solve poverty yeah we could solve the healthcare crisis but we lost track of baby yoda right yes perfect yeah why 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 do we focus on something that matters that's a good point and i, I was going to make a meme of our conversation Matt we will make memes of baby yoda yeah I, I was listening to, to your, your sci-fi podcast, which is called, again, Alienating the Audience. Nice, nice market placement there. And I was thinking of Baby Yoda because this is not inconsequential to, to all of these other problems. Um, I, I found an article. Um, some people have, have, have heard this, but Axios, which purports to be a serious, uh, um, I think one of the guys from Political, Politico went over to create yeah. Axios. Yeah, yeah. And the headline of this particular story, Why Baby Yoda Should Scare Michael Bloomberg and Deval Patrick. And Michael Bloomberg and Deval Patrick, of course, are the most recent entrants into the Democratic presidential oh, field. Oh, Deval Patrick's the one from Massachusetts. Yeah, he's former governor. Right. And, and, and neither one of these guys would, would, would be my choice by any means. But yeah. um, the, the, the most interesting thing that has been happening in late November is that Baby Yoda has been crushing the entire Democratic presidential field <laughs> when it comes to interactions on Facebook and Twitter. Yeah. Like two to one. Bernie Sanders is number two at, at 850. And this is like a, a two-week period. Um, Baby Yoda is at 1,671. And Tulsi Gabbard is down at 523. But poor... Michael Bloomberg is at 171, and Deval Patrick is at 134. So they're, they're being crushed by Baby Yoda. And I should point out that, uh, where is she? She may not even be on the list. Um, but we just lost 
one of the Kamala Harris, yeah, Kamala Harris pulled out of the race. Um, she was getting crushed by by Baby Yoda, and I don't want to I don't want to draw like a, a clear link to these two things, but I think it's actually true. <laughs> Wait, um, do you think Baby Yoda sucked the air out of the Kamala Harris campaign? Because yeah. it's possible. Well, it's, like I think impeachment probably has sucked the air out of a lot of campaigns. Yeah, I I, th- I, th- I think Baby Yoda's killing it on social media, which which gets to your point that you made early on um, when you said you wanted to do like a, a sci-fi thing. Like um, people care about Baby Yoda more than they care about the next presidential election. Yeah. I think I think that's absolutely true. And I think it's because they get joy out of Baby Yoda memes. And there is no joy watching a Democratic presidential yeah, debate. Wouldn't it be weird if we had a system that facilitated happiness? Instead of just uh, anger and bile. Yeah. See, I like actually some, something that um, I, I'm I'm not an Elizabeth Warren fan, but something that she did the other day that I thought was a really clever idea was apparently uh, now Elizabeth Warren's dog is running for first dog, and I was like, that's smart because people love dogs, right? right. So if it's like, hey, like, don't you want Bailey to be the first dog? Also, Elizabeth Warren's gonna be president. People are like, yeah, 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 that sounds great. Like maybe we should have a system where um, we get to elect like, like for, okay, I, I would love, I would love it. If we um, we split the office of the presidency into the head of state who has zero power and the head of government, and we split that into three different offices too, and that those people we get to kick around. The head of state, we all elect Betty White. Betty White's now queen of America, but she has zero power. Or Baby Yoda. I'm fine with that too. I think it's uh, – I think that we – um, I want to establish paternity before I go all in on Baby Yoda. <laughs> or maybe Betty White gave – birth to, to, to baby Yoda. <laughs> Entirely possible, because uh, Betty White is 900 years old. Right. Um, no, I, I think this is one of the weird things. So go, going back to Scotland, where I was this summer, I think the Brits have inadvertently, in the same way that we intentionally decided to separate uh, church and state, they have inadvertently separated reverence from power. And we haven't done that. We, yeah. we've, we've, the, the president is the chaplain of the country and the seer of seers and the, the father of the nation and all these things that, that give him or her a cloak of imperium and, and gravity and grandeur that I think is incredibly dangerous. Yeah. I would love to split that. It would be awesome if we could elect Baby Yoda, President of America, and then have like a lesser office that's like Deputy Director of the Administrative Agenda or whatever that we also vote on. Uh, and that's the person handling the executive branch. Well, I think that's like the, this tribalism and this this winner-take-all and you must destroy your enemy and and, and even being unwilling. And, and uh, the, the current debate about impeachment is precisely like this. You can't actually have a conversation yeah. about the facts of the case. And I don't even know what they are. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I've avoided it because it, it's such a it's such a sad thing to watch all my friends who, I, I have friends on polar opposites of this debate, yeah. and very few of them actually debate the, the facts of the case and, and what, 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 is, what is the rule of law in impeachment? What is that process? Um, but what they're fighting over has nothing to do with the facts. It has to do with with controlling the presidency, the king, the executive who is now prone, and it just didn't start with Trump, but Trump absolutely is right. in this category of I'm I'm going to decide, and I'm going to I'm going to make things better for my team, and screw all you other guys, and that that all goes back to the fact that 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 our government is making too many damn decisions about our lives, and we got to get back to where. Baby Yoda matters more because the the culture and the conversation that we have outside of politics. This is where we could actually solve problems. I agree. Who was it? It might have been the founder of Cato. Not not Coke, but I can't remember the other one. I can't remember who it is. But they had a quote that like the best country to live in is one where you're not afraid to drink the water and you can't remember the name of the president. Yeah, I think that's about true. Like yeah. I I would like I would love for that to be such a subset of what's going on that it's like, oh, who's the president? Yeah, 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 yeah. John Huntsman. Yeah, I forgot about that, or whoever it is. Yeah, right? yeah. Uh, but yeah, that would be wonderful. Well, I, th- I think that's and and this whole you know we have this debate about where we fit on the political spectrum, and and you're you're you've embraced this this label, um, social democrat, and I hear those words, and Partly. I'm I'm going to say I'm like, yeah. I believe in social stuff. Like I I think people interacting is a good thing, and and if democracy means sort of. Uh, pushing decisions back to the end user, which I think is a, is a broader definition of democracy than the sort of bastardized version where 51% of the public gets to tell 48, 49% yeah. what to do. Like that's, yeah. that's, that's pretty dangerous stuff. 
But democracy, where I get to choose which music I listen to and whether or not I'm going to share the, the Baby Yoda memes until all of my friends unfriend me, uh, th- that's beautiful, right? That's where, uh, that's, that's where humans actually figure out how to get along with each other. But it's, it's not politics. It can't be politics. Yeah. Well, I don't think um, politics, again, will, will give you the meaning that Baby Yoda will. I think I think Baby Yoda's always going to come. Baby Yoda's always going to be, what was it like, Obamacare Pajama Boy or something? You remember that from a couple yeah, yeah. years ago? Yeah, Baby Yoda, hands down, 100%. Um, in, insofar as the, the social democracy goes, I mean, I think either way, the, the, the point of what I'm trying to do is to empower individuals. Um, where, where I get into trouble in my mind with the goals I'm trying to accomplish, if I'm only concerned with compelling other people by use of force, and that's the only metric that I have, then it seems to me that there will be people that are left behind that that just don't have the traction necessary to get ahead. Now, long term, on a macro level, they probably will in the sense that like 60 years from now, 100 years from now, the rising tide lifts all boats. I think that that's probably true. Um, I'm okay with having a minor redistributive element um, just to ensure people have, um, you know, uh, whatever that is, healthcare, public education, something like that. Uh, but in my mind, where I think the conversation's kind of gone astray in American politics is that everything's bundled unnecessarily together. So if you're a progressive, you're in favor of regulating how people interact, how businesses interact, and how people um, govern their own lives and where their income goes. Um, and in my mind, you can kind of make a distinction between like a regulatory state versus a welfare state. Uh, and I'm more amenable to the welfare state. The regulatory state, I think we're probably pretty much, you know, I guess don't like build nukes in your backyard. Don't anything involving negative uh, externalities maybe is fair game, but anything sub negative externalities I'm not for. Uh, but I'm okay with a little bit of that redistributive, um, element to it. Um, but the end goal is to empower individuals so that they can leave, uh, uh, live full lives. So your, your whole experiment is you're, you're trying to reach an audience that wants to have a civil conversation about exactly what we've been talking about mm. and, and no, like, um, no, no shaming and no yelling and no, no uh, kicking people off the island kind of stuff. Um, but but entire, the entirety of social media is yeah. designed specifically to do all those things, <laughs> right? Yeah, um, except for Baby Yoda, but yeah. Um, and so, tell me how that model's going because you are you are currently funded uh, solely on Patreon. Patreon, you're yeah. your own boss, or at least well, my my audience your, is. Your yeah. Patreon uh, subscribers are are your boss. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, it's going well. Like one, like the the thing that I'm bolstered by is I'll say social media is not designed for people like me. Um, so I, I had a guest on my my former program that was talking about how Twitter. Twitter does far better if you are being negative than if you're being positive. Mm-hmm. If Mr. Rogers were alive today, he would probably have less of a following than somebody that's constantly lobbing insults, right? Um, so social media is not great for me. That said, though, I do find that there is a huge thirst for empirical thinking and civil discourse that's not not being catered to by all parties, right? Like, like I said earlier, I think most, not all, but most people in the commentariat are making you feel good about what you already think and getting you riled up about hating the other person. And and I think there's a huge swell of people that don't want to fit into that. Um, one of the things that I've really loved and been pleasantly surprised by with the uh, with the Patreon model is, um, uh, you know, I, I had on uh, Charlie Cook from National Review um, about two months ago, and we did reasonably deep policy discussion about gun control. Charlie is much more pro second amendment than I am. I'm kind of I'm a moderate on gun control and I was very worried about that. I thought I have I have an obligation to be honest uh, to the audience and I I have a either journalistic or comedian obligation to be honest as well. Um, and I was kind of and what I found was that the audience was perfectly fine to disagree with me as long as I wasn't being contemptful of them or of Charlie. Mm-hmm. If if I if I went Charlie you seem like a good guy and like I'd really like to hear where you're coming from and I maybe I'm wrong and let, let's have a good cut. No one minded that at all. There were a lot of they did want to contribute and go I think Keaton you're wrong because of X Y and Z, but I'm fine with that. I think that's a, a, a perfectly worthwhile thing to do to be like I enjoy your show. Here's how you could improve your opinion and make things better. That's great. Um, so that's been going well. 
Um, and the Patreon thing's fantastic, too, because, um, you know, I, I've worked for The Blaze. I've worked for Reason. Um, I worked for Fox Business for a while. In all of those instances, the audience was two or three levels removed from uh, my boss. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when I worked for Reason, uh, I had a manager. I liked him very much. But I had a manager, and the manager uh, was was talking to the, the board, and the board, in turn, was concerned about donors and things like that. And so the actual people watching the videos were not the people that were most directly affected by my decision. Patreon's fantastic in that regard because if, uh, if, I, if I think about um, changing something, I can literally go to all the people paying the bills and I can email all of them and go, I was thinking about doing this with a format. What do you think about that? Uh, and uh, get immediate feedback. It's a tr- like from a performance standpoint, it's like a really amazing model. I'm really glad it's there. It's like it's democratic, like a marketplace. Yeah, I mean, it is literally a marketplace. I mean, because like, because people can participate or they can choose not to participate, and it's all yeah. cool. And and I and I gotta say, from it, it, it being a market, like uh, if if I'm like, hey, I'm thinking about, I don't know, I'm gonna add 20 minutes of horse jokes to every show that I do. What do you think, audience? Um, I am clearly going to pay more attention to the people that are funding the program than I am to the people who aren't. I'm glad everybody's there. That's like. I hope people listen to it. That's wonderful. I'm really thrilled. But the people I work for are the people paying the bills, and I can I can go. You guys hate horse jokes. Well, I'm going to do horse jokes then. You know, I, I wouldn't alter my opinion based on that. But the format, the guests, things like that, um, the you know the, the topics we cover. I don't know how I structure the program, all that kind of stuff. Uh, I welcome that input, and and it's a great model in that regard. Well, part of your brand is 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 honesty. And I, Thank I, th- you. I think there is a there is a there's a radical counter revolution that I talk about a lot on this show, and, and you could see it uh, somewhat in the in the intellectual dark web, where people want to have civil conversations, and there appears to be a, a radical diversity of views amongst the so-called intellectual dark yeah. web, um, and they they have all sorts of interesting, um, sometimes wacky guests on, but but people. Uh, clearly, there's a, there's a hunger for that alternative to the Shoutfest, Fox versus N- MSNBC right. kind of thing. So, the uh, I'm going to put you on the spot. Will we see a sci-fi podcast on Baby Yoda? Sure, a hundred percent. I I hadn't even thought about it, but yes, I think you, I, th- I think you would crush it. And we're going to get we're going to get to these these controversies about whether or not uh, Yoda is is a good father. I think I could do a full episode on Baby Yoda backstory. And get a couple of other hardcore nerds together to come up with how does he fact? Yeah, no, I think this is entirely doable. At the very least, we could do a deep dive on Yoda's species, which I'm sure has a ton of scholastic work already existent. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And and the final question: Will Baby Yoda win in 2020? God, I hope so. Wouldn't that be great? <laughs> yeah. Wouldn't that be wonderful if uh, if it was Baby Yoda followed by Bailey the dog? Well, and then, like, eventually, like, like the, the highest level of government was, like, the assistant deputy of the Department of Education or something like that. Like, like it was, yeah, no, I hope so. Okay. Uh, where do people find Andrew Heaton? Thank you. The best two places to find me are via the podcast, which is The Political Orphanage and Alienating the Audience. And to a lesser extent, you can find me on Twitter, but I'm honestly much more active on the podcasts than I am on social media. Okay, thank you. We have to finish these before you go, but we don't want to do that on camera. (laughs) We'll drink all four of these bottles. Hey, Matt, it's fun to hang out with you. Thank you so much for letting me chill with you when I'm I'm back in D.C. Yeah, it's good seeing you, man. Thanks for listening to Kibbe on Liberty. Be sure to subscribe and rate the podcast. Your ratings will help us reach even more people with our mostly honest conversations with mostly interesting people.